Some of you know that a couple weeks ago I relaunched Bible readers beginning in June of 2020. Every weekday for a year, I posted a five-minute summary of a chunk of Scripture, and we read through every chapter of every book to get a very introductory feel for who God is and what God is up to. Now I'm in the midst of a deep dive into Genesis, and I'm genuinely having a lot of fun uh, reading stories that I think I already know, but it turns out I've only seen tips of icebergs. My biblical imagination is expanding, and you're invited to join me. Uh, it's not too late. You can pick up from the first post at Facebook or YouTube or through our website. I know today's text is from the prophet Amos, but I think some themes from Genesis help us understand what Amos is trying to say and why Amos is saying it, because Amos is mad, but also confident in both God and in God's people. And all of those feelings are rooted in the beginning, if you know what I mean. Lots of Christians are familiar with the stories from the first 11 chapters of Genesis. When, you, when I make a list of what those stories are, you've got creation, you've got stories of the earth people, as Pastor Karen wonderfully described them last week, Adam and Eve. And then there's a story about Cain and Abel, and there's a story about Noah and the flood, and there's the Tower of Babel. Famous stories, right? Told really in word pictures. They're like poetic works of art. Each day, for example, another big part of creation gets created. Well, that works perfectly for a book that with each page turn is a new day, with new stuff you can draw into that day. Adam and Eve speaking to a serpent in a majestic garden just lends itself to a giant mural in a Sunday school room, right? The rainbow, perfect. The beginning of Genesis is full of iconic images that look great in illustrated children's Bibles and cross-stitched into pillow shams, and you can even make bath toys out of Noah's Ark and all its animals, right? Once chapter 12 of Genesis starts, though, merchandising becomes more difficult. Genesis goes from talking about a God who calls the whole world into being to how that same God calls one particular person, Abram, into something new, a life of faith, a lifestyle based on a series of promises, promises that are just given from God to this person, Abram. The promises are graced, not earned in any way. The response to these promises of God can be faith or not. That's what makes the stories of Abram so suspenseful. Like, how's he going to respond to God's initial promise? With faithful obedience. He just goes. But what about when God's promises are not fulfilled? Like, for a long time, how will Abram respond then? Well, understandably, he comes to believe that this call that God gave him to live a life of faith must have been a false alarm. 
Because at the heart of God's promises is one that says that Abram and Sarai will have children, and yet they're old, it's been a while, and nothing's happened. Okay, so how does God react to Abram's doubt? God doubles down and restates the promise. God does not do or say anything to persuade Abram, and God never forces Abram to trust in the promise and respond with faith, but God does offer something a little different, a revelation. He tells Abram, look toward heaven and count the stars. So shall your descendants be. Well, again, God is not explaining how that's going to happen. God does not explain when to expect descendants. God still isn't offering any proof about what will happen. The only proven thing in Abram's life is that his wife Sarai is still barren. That he's seen. That he knows. And yet, after God offers this revelation, inviting Abram to look up at the stars, Abram miraculously believes God, and he believed the Lord. And I love the next line, the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. When a child you love says or does the right thing, like completely on their own, you know, maybe you've helped do your best to set them up for success, but then they actually get it for themselves, that's when a a parent or a godparent, someone that cares can say, I reckon that to you is righteousness. Love that line. I tell that story of the faith of Abram, an imperfect faith full of struggle and including a lack of trust at times because that imperfect faith comes into contact again and again and again with the persistence and graciousness of God, with God's willingness to keep God's promises alive and true. That contact between doubt-filled faith and God's gracious persistence started with Abram, continued even after he's renamed Abraham, and then continues through his son Isaac and his son Jacob and eventually into the whole community of Israel and and to to the prophet of Amos and to, to all of us now. Walter Brueggemann is my primary source of wisdom for my Genesis study, and he says this, faith as response is the capacity to embrace the announced future with such passion that the present can be relinquished for the sake of that future. Abram is called by God to let go of the present. In his case, the fact that Sarah is barren and now old. Relinquish that bad news. Let go of that bad news for the sake of a future God will provide. That's faith. Giving up your now for God's later. That's really hard to do, though. (laughs) Because we think our later has to be up to us. We think we need to secure our later. We're told by pretty much every smart person around that's what we're supposed to do. 
Because I guess the premise there is we're in control of our later. So I want you to think back at your life. Look back. Why in the world would any of us think we're in control of any of this? You who have ever been depressed, indebted, addicted, diagnosed with a terrible disease, lost a job, been divorced, gotten into a car accident. Shoot, if you've ever had the weather not fully cooperate with a a really big important event in your life, why in the world would any of us think we're in control of anything? It's the biggest lie we tell ourselves every day. Abram was descended from a long line of people who all shared one thing in common. Every generation of them had a child. Life happened from every generation before Abram, but that was all ending with him, and he knew it. He and Sarah were the end of a line, and that was the worst fate there was for humans of this era, to be barren. He didn't choose that. He wasn't in control of that. What barrenness do you know? What barrenness do you endure? Because whatever it is, that's where this story meets yours. Into Abram and Sarai's void, much like God spoke creation into nothingness, much like God will bring life from the death of Jesus, Into Abram's barrenness, God promises descendants as numerous as the stars. Relinquish your present pain for the sake of a future I will give you. Give up your now for God's later. Abram does. He believes the Lord, Genesis says. That's faith. But here's the flip side of a faith response to this promise of God. And this is why Mark's gospel, if we had read today's gospel, it says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. As hard as it is for someone like Abram to disregard the barren life he can see and experience in every painful way, he has little to lose, really, by offering faithful obedience, right? Like, okay, Abram believes that he'll have descendants more numerous than the stars. All he has to relinquish is his self-reliance. Okay, that's not easy to do. That's not comfortable to do. But it sounds like worth, worth it for him. The result to have a child, that seems like a, a thing that he maybe he wants to do. What if you actually have stuff to lose, though? Like, what if you're wealthy? How can you respond with faith, give up your now for God's later, if you personally now have a lot? That's what Amos is getting at in the text we hear for today. Amos is an angry prophet who is right to be angry because as personally as we may think about things, Amos is thinking communally. Amos knows God doesn't just care about one person at a time. God cares for the whole community that is creation. 
Amos knows that God loves each member of creation equally and provides for each member equally. But then God sees that some are using their individual gifts to cleverly attain more from the rest of the community than is their fair share. Amos sees a nation who, to quote the wisdom of Madonna, are living in a material world. Kids, ask your parents. Amos sees individuals sitting in the lap of luxury while watching others in their community suffer, and that makes Amos mad. It's a condition that still convicts us as we are among the wealthiest nations of the world, and yet children in our own community are hungry. Homelessness persists locally. Basic needs aren't met for millions in the United States. For the marginalized, for the poor, for the barren like Abram, who had little to lose, God's promise that God's going to bring life into barrenness to be a recipient of that promise, it seems a lot easier for those who have nothing to lose, right? Relinquishing their present pain for the sake of a future God will give, relatively speaking, it's not that tough to get that string through the eye of that needle. But for the wealthy, for the privileged, for those like me who have lots to lose, God offers me the exact same promise as God offers Abram. Relinquish whatever your present is for the sake of a future I will give. So like I said, that's great news for a person whose present kind of stinks. But what if I like my present circumstances, which I usually do? I mean, just think of all my good fortune, my privilege. I work hard for sure, but my hard work gets to pay off and has at almost every point of my life. My skin colors never held me back. My gender, my sexual orientation have never been a disadvantage. My health is solid. Shoot, I live a Lake Wobegon life where all the women are strong, the men are good looking, and the kids are above average. For me to respond to God's promise with faith, means I'd have to be willing to let go of all that, all my wealth and good fortune, and dare I say privilege, so that less fortunate, underprivileged, marginalized people can be brought to equity with a person like me in this promised future of God. Who would choose that? And why would I choose that when God's promise can't even be proven in the first place? I'm invited to let go of the good stuff in this life in favor of a promise that gives that good stuff also to everyone equally in some future something with a God that can't be proven. Why would I choose that? How could a faith response happen in a lucky, privileged jerk like me? That's as hard as getting a camel through the eye of a needle. That's Jesus' point. And Amos knows that resistance to God's promise, our efforts to hold on, to believe in the delusion of control, to keep, that is unfaith. There are only two responses, really, to believe, to truly trust in God's future, or to believe I can do better than that. 
because I am me after all. You are you after all. And we can be pretty impressed with ourselves sometimes, you know? Amos is not. <laughs> Amos is not impressed. Amos believes the future God has in mind is better than anything you or I can make happen. That might sound really obvious, but it's not. To think that God's future could be even better than one we can create. As a prophet, Amos' job is to remind privileged people that as good as you think you might have it, whether you think you have it because of God's blessings or whether you think you have it maybe because of your own cleverness, faith means to seek the Lord and live, which means to hate evil, love good, which means establish justice. Seek justice is Amos' point. The point Amos is making is that as fun, as nice, as peaceful, as pleasurable as it is to be me or maybe to be you, it's even better to seek justice for everyone because seeking justice is seeking the Lord. Seeking justice is how we respond to God's promises with faith. And a lifestyle that is faithful just happens to be generous, not greedy, forgiving, not resentful, kind, not mean. It's a lifestyle that expands our capacity for life and love. Amos saw the life of Israel shrinking into individual little silos where each person focused just on their own well-being, oftentimes, almost always, at the expense of others, which is why there's church. Engaging in this church, at our best anyway, is like engaging with a prophet. That we take time to participate in this hunger walk this afternoon, when there's lots of other things we could be doing. There is a Packer game on at the same time. <gasps> that might seem to be far more pleasurable. I guess we'll see around halftime, but we don't have to do a hunger walk. There's no necessity there for us, maybe, but our church chooses to care that parts of our community are hungry or that we have a group of ladies who work tirelessly to tie hundreds of quilts a year. They don't have to do that. That's not how they have to use their time, but our church chooses to care that people will never meet. People will never hear say thank you. We believe they still deserve a measure of our abundance. We do lots of stuff like this as a church. But I don't know any of us who think, and you know what? We do enough. We should be just content with this response of faith. Because faith is akin to love. The more you offer a response like faith, the more you want to do faith things. And so we have plans to sponsor at least one family, maybe more, Afghan allies. We want to do the work as a family of faith to be a welcoming family to all people who join us here and who exist out there, especially those within the LGBTQIA community, but also people of color, differing abilities, differing socioeconomic statuses. We can either trust in God's future where all are claimed and chosen, where 
all are fed and forgiven, or we can believe we can do better, and mostly just for ourselves. Today, in God's grace, we are given another chance. God keeps giving us another opportunity to respond to God's promises with a lifestyle of faith. Thanks be to God. Amen.